Well, turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 14 this morning. Romans chapter 14. I'll read again the passage we read last week, and then we'll consider the second half of the passage today. So Romans chapter 14. Again, I'll read verses 1 through 12. We'll focus on verses 5 through the end of the chapter. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then... Why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his help once again. Lord, again, we come to you for your help. Your testimonies are our delight. They are our counselors. And so we bless you, again, that we have your word. You're you're the great God, and you have spoken to us in your word. You've given us Jesus Christ, the word of God. And here we have the scriptures that bear witness to him and are his words. So, Father, we thank you for that. And I pray, as as we've already read and now as the word is preached, give us great delight, great joy and happiness in your truth and pour out the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth in our hearts and minds to understand the promises here, the teaching, what the prophets saw and rejoiced in, what Christ taught, what the apostles taught, that it would be our way of life and that we would love it and rejoice in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the gospel? Now that's the question we've been answering throughout this whole series on Romans. And a summary answer can be found in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, or that brings salvation, to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. And if we were to ask, well, how does news bring salvation? Because the gospel, the good news, tells us how the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith 
from first to last. The gospel tells us of the finished work of Christ, a work that provides a righteous status bestowed on God's people, on all who believe the good news. Those who trust Jesus receive this righteous status. And that's a summary of the gospel that I imagine most of us are familiar with. But there is an additional element to the gospel that I've tried to emphasize throughout this series, and it occurs uh, throughout the book, but it occurs even earlier in Romans than the verse I just quoted you. In fact, the very opening verses of the book draw our attention to this theme. They tell us that the gospel concerns God's Son, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. And as Lord, he is calling all the nations to obey the faith. That's a summary of the first seven verses of Romans. The Lordship of Christ, a central theme of the gospel. Paul combines both of these elements, faith in Jesus and allegiance to Jesus as Lord. He combines them in his summary, his central summary of the gospel in Romans 10.9. If you declare with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What I want us to see today It's how both of these themes, faith in Jesus and loyalty to his lordship, I want us to see how both of them operate in Romans 14. Last week, we considered the opening verses of this chapter, where Paul admonishes the Christians and the churches in Rome to accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. There were believers in Rome who abstained from eating certain foods that were forbidden under the Mosaic Covenant. And in addition, they continued to observe various holy days required or once required by the law. And they also may have avoided wine due to concerns over ritual contamination. Well, Paul admonishes these two groups to accept one another. As verse 3 summarizes, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. Why should the church strive for unity in the face of divisive issues? Because, as the end of verse 3 reads, for God has accepted them. If God accepts both groups by faith, then we must accept one another in the faith. And the gospel can heal divisions in the church by teaching us to recognize where Christians can disagree with one another and by moving us to accept others as God accepts them. Justification by faith produces fellowship by faith. And I want us to continue today our journey into Romans 14 and 15. Both chapters, or most of 15, is the same subject as all of 14. I want to push further into them by considering a third way. The gospel heals our divisions in the church. And it relates to this key theme of Jesus' lordship. The gospel heals our divisions 
by focusing on our submission to Christ's lordship. That's what the gospel focuses on. Or I could even say it focuses us on our submission to Jesus' lordship. So let's begin with verse 5 today. Paul writes, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. So here Paul refers specifically to one of the issues that was dividing the Christians at Rome, the observance of Jewish holy days. Now again, this could be your Old Testament festivals, or it could just be traditional fasting days that developed perhaps in the time between the Old and the New Testament periods. Regardless of what it was, you you can tell from the overall tone of the passage in other New Testament writings as well that such days are not mandatory for believers in Jesus Christ. Once the festivals were But now in Christ, they no longer are. And you can tell that's what Paul is implying beneath the surface. But rather than emphasizing that, rather than even coming out and saying that directly, Paul allows each person to hold their own view. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. So Paul's counsel is no one should be forced to do something that their conscience is telling them not to do. He'll say more on that in next week's passage. And at the same time, no one uh, should be obligated to do something that God does not require. And we could even throw in there, no one should be prohibited from doing something that is harmless, like observing a holy day, if their conscience tells them they should observe it. And of course, assuming they're not making that obedience mandatory for salvation. In other words, Paul doesn't just solve the problem and say, okay, everybody do this. He allows an environment where there will be differences. He allows an environment of maximal freedom within the boundaries of the gospel and within the boundaries of how our actions affect one another. And again, that's a focus he'll introduce when we come to verses 13 and following next week. Now again, why does Paul, here's the question for today, why does Paul allow each person to hold their own view on these matters? I mean, that's taking a lot of risk, isn't it? Well, because as the next verse tells us, Ultimately, what we do and do not do should be done for the Lord and not for others. Verse 6 reads, Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now, Two of those actions pertain to the weak. They regard one day as more special than another, and they abstain from me. And they do both of those actions for the Lord. That decision is made with reference to the Lord or in light of the Lord. But at the same time, the believer who eats meat and doesn't observe the days, he does so for the Lord. They believe that such actions are pleasing and acceptable to God. 
So it almost seems then that when Paul in verse 5 says, make up your own mind, it's almost like he's saying, hey, make up your own mind and not the minds of others. You know, don't worry about figuring it out for other people. Figure it out for yourself. Make up your own mind on these issues. And so Paul continues in verse 7, For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. Now it almost sounds like he's beginning to speak of how your actions might affect someone else. But it's not his emphasis yet, it's coming. But the next verse makes clear his point here. Verse 8 reads, If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. When verse 7 says none of us lives for ourselves alone, here's what it means. Ultimately, we live or we die with reference to the Lord. And so here's how one author explains it. All parts of believers' lives, their thoughts, actions, ambitions, decisions, they are to be carried out with a view to what pleases and glorifies the Lord. And so it's almost this double emphasis. On the one hand, it's like, don't carry it out with reference to what others think. Don't make that your primary controlling idea. But at the same time, don't, don't go through life without being a thoughtful person. Do it with reference to God. Does this please the Lord, whether you live or die? And if we wonder, okay, well, why the emphasis on death? I mean, once I die, these decisions don't really... Uh, happen any longer. Well, the same author writes this, the circumstances of the believer's death as of his life are determined not by his will or in consideration of his own interests, but are wholly in the hands of the Lord who sets the time for death in accordance with his own interests and purposes. That that gets a little wordy. So, So here, just put it all together. Here's the main idea. Paul is saying, look, life is short. Determine what you think about these things before God. And don't waste time judging and condemning one another or trying to fix one another on disputable matters. Rather, do everything you do and don't do in order to please God. And if that sounds like the end of 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God, it's the very same conversation in that chapter as well. Whether to eat the meat that once was offered to an idol or to abstain because of another believer's conscience. Whether you eat or don't eat. Whether you drink or don't drink. Hey, do it with reference to the Lord for his glory. And when we make that our focus, when when we focus on ourselves, and our own actions before God, that will then not create divisions in the church. In fact, that will work to heal them. And a focus like this accords with the purpose of Jesus' earthly ministry. So once again, we're grounding everything in the gospel. Verse 9 reads, For this very reason Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Christ died and rose again in order to become Lord over every aspect of the believer's life. And so he's the Lord. We are not Lord of one another, but Christ is Lord of all. And so verse 10 begins to conclude 
this idea. Paul writes, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. You see, when we judge one another, we are appropriating to ourselves a prerogative that is God's alone. In other words, we're trying to do a job that God has said, I'll do that job. And and only God gets to judge. And here's the thing, only God is able to judge. And he will exercise that right on the final day when we all give an account to God for the lives we have lived. And you know, Paul's statement here, it kind of reminds me of the end of the book of Job. Remember there where God rebukes Job because Job was calling God to give an account. I want want you to explain to me why I'm going through these trials. And God confronts Job with these facts. I alone am the creator. I alone am the sustainer of the universe. It's creeping into the area of I alone am judge. And so Job really has no right to accuse God of wrongdoing in Job's life. Now here's the thing. I think we're familiar with that lesson when it comes to complaining to God about our circumstances. Okay, I I shouldn't accuse God. I I shouldn't go too far in how I ask him about my circumstances. But here's the question. What about when it pertains to complaining about others? Or criticizing others for their decisions? Are we prepared to put our hands over our mouths? As Job did, not only when it comes to how we think about God's providence in our lives, but also when it comes to God's providence in other people's lives. I mean, think about it. The same God who has guided you, the same God who's shaped your life, The same God who's shaped your conscience. The same God who speaks to you from the word of God and has guided you to the place where you are now in your life. He is also the Lord and God of others. And so we have to trust that God will guide them as well. And if nothing else, if we think, I don't know if they're listening to God's guidance, that in these areas, we would leave that judgment to God alone that we would leave judgment on their actions to God, who alone has the right and ability to judge. And look, I know there are plenty of issues or decisions where people disagree with one another. I know that, that in my mind, I know there are areas where I disagree with other people. I'm not saying we have to pretend those differences don't exist. Maybe there's even a place for talking to one another in order to learn and in order to grow. We don't have to pretend the differences don't exist. I I know they're there. And listen, I want to assure all of you, I've humbly searched my heart. I know I'm the one who's right, okay? Wherever there's differences, God has shown that to me. But, But why are you smiling and laughing? Because you feel the same way, all right? So Paul's point, you feel the same way about yourself, not about me, all right? So Paul's point isn't, hey, let's just pretend these differences don't exist. You know, go along to get along. His point is, though, that we would accept one another and that we would let others stand before God so that we can worship God in unity. That's where he'll get in chapter 15. And bear witness to the world that Jesus is Lord. And so when you think of those with whom you disagree, 
is that the primary category you assign to them? You just think of them through that lens of, hey, I disagree with that person. Or do you think of them primarily as, that is my brother and sister in the Lord? And so as Paul comes to these last two verses, he reminds us that how we follow these directions will be part of our accounting to God on the last day. Verses 11 through 12 read, it is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. That last phrase there, that's not just another general reminder. Hey, Christians, you're going to give an account to God alone. No, it's a specific reminder. It's a heads up. You will give an account to God for judging one another. If we violate the commands of this chapter, that will be a part of our giving an account to God. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked into a totally different topic. I do think since we've read these verses about judgment, it might be worth giving just a brief explanation before we leave these verses on what Paul means when he says we will give an account to God on the last day. So I think some Christians have imagined that all believers will face God one day and he will correct you for all the things that you did wrong as a Christian. Kind of like it's often called the judgment seat of Christ for Christians. And and the movie screen is there and, and God reviews your service to him throughout your life. And hey, you're saved by faith, but your rewards in heaven, well, that's just going to be based on how obedient you were. That's one image. And on the other hand, I think some people imagine that, all right, people are going to get into heaven if their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. And that's not just something that came up in the Middle Ages. Jewish writings before the time of Jesus come close to using that very language. Is there more good than bad? I want to fine-tune both of those images a bit. Will Christians give an account to God for the life they have lived. Yes, they will. However, the point of Paul emphasizing over and over again in Romans, especially those first chapters, the point of him hammering the truth of justification by faith is to assure all people that you can pass the final judgment when you stand before God by faith. In fact, Those who trust Jesus alone for their salvation and swear allegiance to him as Lord are justified now. We've actually already received the verdict of the last day now by faith. Judgment has already been rendered for you and you have been found to be in the right. It's a major emphasis of the Bible, especially Romans, at the same time. The Bible also speaks of us being judged according to our works on the last day. Paul uses some language like that here and earlier in Romans. And the idea there is that we will be evaluated on the basis of the entire life we have lived before God. Okay, so now are you saying that the works uh, give me the reward of heaven? No, the point of the evaluation is to see if the faith we professed genuinely produced works. And I would argue we can make sense of this biblical language not by saying that works save us, but by saying that works are the evidence of the faith 
that justifies. So are works evaluated on the last day? Yes, but they are evaluated in order to reflect genuine saving faith. In other words, you're going to bear witness to your faith on the last day by means of works. So you won't pass the judgment because of works. You'll pass the judgment because you're saved by grace through faith unto good works, as Ephesians 2 says. And I think this is a good way of describing the final judgment. I think it's a way that holds together the Bible's emphasis on faith and works, such as we find it in Romans and as we also find it in the book of James. So, in light of all those thoughts today, and to bring it back to the main emphasis today, we can conclude with a few self-diagnostic questions we might call them. So whenever my check engine light comes on on my older car, and and it's often, uh, Brian Walsh helpfully comes over and he checks the code. All right, what is the problem with the car? How serious is it? Well, what kind of codes might a passage like this give us? Well, first, generally speaking, we can all ask if we are prepared to give an account to God. One day, Jesus will come again. He will call the nations to give an account. He's calling them now to obey the faith. So when he calls you on that day and looks for the evidence of faith, will he find faith and works characterizing your life? Second, speaking to Christians and getting more into the meat of this passage, do you live your life? with reference to what pleases God. I mean, is that the driving principle of your life? I'm going to say more about this tonight in Matthew 24 as we look at the judgments and and what it means to be ready and to watch for the Lord's appearing. But now, do you live your life trying to please God? Now, when I ask that question, I, I don't want to produce this effect in you, where you are overcome with intense introspection of every decision you make, and you're just overcome with agony over whether every detail of your life pleases God. At the end of the day, if that's, if that's where you go, know this. At the end of the day, we are accepted by God by faith. And sometimes you just have to trust that. And Paul gives a lot of liberty here to enjoy good things from God with a good conscience. So do that. But at the same time, Paul does want us to think through our actions and to make pleasing God the determinative factor in what decision you make. I mean, Paul has thought through these issues, hasn't he? I mean, Paul does a very poor job of hiding what he thinks about this issue. But as I keep saying, rather than him just settling it, Rather than making his judgment the rule, he counsels each person, be fully convinced in your own mind. So he says to each person, listen, you need to respect your conscience. And at the same time, you need to inform your conscience with God's truth. Listen to your conscience, but then listen to the word and let it inform your conscience. And don't think that any of let, let none of us think that there aren't areas where we can't grow. Every one of us has blind spots. Every one of us has areas where we, we should be willing to consider, okay, how can I please God with my decision and how I relate to others? And that brings me then to the last 
observation. We, we've hinted at it already. Paul's highest priority for this congregation was not who's right and who's wrong, but how we treat one another. And we can get preoccupied with being right on disputed matters, and we can forget it's the health and the welfare of the body that's a high priority to the Lord. We're tempted to say, well, if we get everything right, we'll have a healthy body. Not in every area. Not according to this passage, that there are areas where it is better to accept one another than worrying about getting everything right. And so we should care about obeying God, but that includes whether we are obeying God in the matter of judging and condemning one another. Jesus is Lord. He's always been Lord and that he's always been God, but he's ruling over the nations now. He's ruling over his church as Lord because he died and rose again to rescue the world from sin and death, to restore creation to the way it was intended to run. And God's intent are that humans should live together in love and harmony. Well, that love and harmony is possible for those who are in Christ. And we can actually present a picture of that when we accept one another as God accepts us, and when we allow for legitimate disagreements with one another, and when we focus primarily on our own submission to Christ's lordship. So let's give thanks. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, again, we are genuinely thankful that Jesus is Lord. We declare that with our mouths and we have learned that jesus is a good master and savior life under your lordship is good and it's our desire to see people in our family people in our church people in our community move more and more under that lordship and i pray you would so so begin with us lord help us to bring every area of our lives under your lordship to think biblically, to think according to the pattern of Christ and of God. Lord, help us to bring all of those areas under your control. And I pray then that you would give us love in our hearts so that we can accept one another. With, as we see then how your lordship plays out in our lives, help us to accept one another. To walk within the bounds of your word, within the bounds of the gospel, and to within those bounds accept one another so that we can worship and love and serve and bear witness to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing in closing hymn 32, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Hymn 32, we'll sing all three verses. Stand with me, please.